what uh, I plan to cover in the time we have is particularly the book in the Bible called Second Timothy, the second letter of Timothy. My reasoning was this. This letter, you will realise, if you have any familiarity with it, is the last letter that Paul writes, and in it he writes, The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me, he says, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. So you have a man finishing his course. He knows his departure is near and he's going to leave behind a man whom he's taken on missionary trips who has been in close fellowship with him and gives to him the understanding that in the days ahead in his life there is a battle he's going to have to face. There's a race he's going to have to run and there's seed he's going to have to sow and finally there will be a harvest he will make. I thought about the things that come so quickly in the world in which we live today. In one year we have seen chaos and change takes place so rapidly in the world we live in. There has been a sexual revolution in our values in one year beyond which we would never have imagined take place a decade ago. Ten years ago we would never have imagined that we would see this kind of change taking place in the church. It can take place in the world. We expect anything from the world. It lies in the hands of the wicked one. But when we watch values collapsing in the church, we know that we are in serious business, very serious. We are watching the cry for peace in the world in the midst of continuous conflict. Wherein lies the answers to the world we are living in? Many in Australia think we will never face it because we haven't. I don't think the day is far off when we will face something of what is happening. Are we prepared? Is the church prepared? And when I look at it and I listen to what we have been fed on over the years, I do not think we are prepared to suffer. We don't face it with an attitude, it is coming our way, it is the lot we expect if we stand for truth. It's the lot we expect. It's appointed unto us Paul said, not only to believe on the Lord Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. So I thought this letter, above all letters, when I came to think about what I should share, may hold for us some of the real answers to how we approach what we are going to face in the year that lies ahead. So I have sought to take you a little bit, I don't know how far we will get, through the thoughts from this book. And I've taken as the text, the one in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, and I've pulled out the section, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're going to focus on the thought of grace 
what it means, God's grace, and uh, it will come out as we step through because we live in a day when often grace has been used as a license to sin. So we're going to cover very carefully, I trust, the issues that we face today in the world we are living in. So when we go through, what I've done is this. I've had notes and uh, it's easier for you, I think, to look on the screen than to hold a piece of paper, as I discussed with Brother Werner. And uh, therefore it's on the screen and we will go through each time and you can have your Bible, you will need your Bible as we draw on texts from the scripture and we will go through systematically like this. And I've put the whole thing on once without bringing up one after the other after the other. I thought it better to just show it like that and then go through. All right? And I've dealt with this whole topic and uh, when we take our text, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, there's another text in the Bible that immediately should spring to your mind. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So you have two texts. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Is there any connection between the power of his might and his grace? It is inseparable. You will never separate the grace of the Lord Jesus from the power of his might. If we do, we do not understand grace. Now let me explain. When Paul had to learn a lesson, which we all have to learn at some time, Paul learned a lesson. And one of the texts, I think I've put it on there. Yeah. I've put on the link between grace and power. So take your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and we're going to look at what is it that links God's grace with his mighty power. 2 Corinthians 12 and we'll just read a section through. Corinthians 12, we'll read what we've got there from verse 7 to verse 10. Paul is giving testimony to God's dealings with him. Now let me explain the background to what you are reading. People were boasting in visions of the Lord and things like that and he said, if I must go on boasting and he didn't want to he steps into an area of his life he said I know a man in Christ whether he is in the body or out of the body he said I do not know but I know such a man caught up into paradise or the third heaven he saw things there was no way he could communicate what he saw the visions that he saw then he brings it to himself because of the abundance of the revelation given to me there was given me a thorn in my flesh 
a messenger of Satan, which God sent, he allowed to buffet me. So he said, lest I become conceited and proud of what I had seen, this is what came my way. And it was a a torment to him. And he said, I prayed to God three times, take it from me. And each time the answer was exactly the same. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So we immediately understand that grace is linked to power. Grace is experienced when we are weak because God's grace is His power exhibited in our weakness. When I am weak, Paul says, then am I strong. So what do we learn? When God brings us to a place of inability, a place where we know we cannot do, we are are unable, we are incapable, we are become then the receptors of God's grace because we cannot do it ourselves and we know it. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. And Paul said, Most gladly therefore I will glory in my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. What happens? God gets the glory for everything that's done. It's an amazing transaction that this man experienced through what God took him through. Now let's read the section through so we know what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 12 and we're going to read from verse 7. Paul writes, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Will you get the link? We cannot separate the two. Grace, the grace of God in Christ, and The power of God, His mighty power, are inseparable. If you know grace, you'll know God's mighty power. You cannot separate the two. There is no other way we can live godly in Christ Jesus except by the power of God, which is the grace of God in Christ. You cannot separate the two. Grace is God's power exhibited in our weakness. And when we are weak, Paul says, then I'm strong. Not because I'm strong. It is the power of Christ in his grace indwelling us that brings our honour to God. Because it is God who has wrought this immense thing that he calls the grace of God working effectually. So there's no excuse for an ungodly lifestyle. Amazing, isn't it? Why? Because we cannot trust in ourselves. The strength does not lie in us. The strength lies in God 
His grace, and when His grace is received, the power works. Now, I, as things come to my mind, I'll put them on and they won't be on the screen. All right? When we're looking at this, there is a, a, a picture in the Old Testament that I don't know whether I've shared it with you. It is so clear to me once I saw it. It's in 2 Kings. You might as well take it. It's not on your screen. It's 2 Kings chapter 2. And I want to illustrate from the scripture this great truth that you see here. 2 Kings chapter 2 and it's from verse 19 to 22. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 19 to 22. I will read it through. Then we are going to apply the principle we have learned here from Paul and the question of grace. It says this, 2 Timothy, oh sorry, 2 Kings 2, verse 19 to 22. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. The water is bad. The land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water was, has remained wholesome to this day according to the word Elisha had spoken. You say, yeah, that's an event. I look back, I see that. God, I learn from the Bible, puts pictures so they are become shadows of reality in your new. And the reality you are seeing here is the issue of grace and how it works. You say, how do you know that? Well, when you're reading your Bible, Colossians 4 verse 6, it says, let your speech, what comes out of your mouth, be always with grace seasoned with salt. That's telling you salt is equated to grace. Salt has a preserving effect but salt has a flavouring effect as well. And the speech, our words that proceed out of our mouth, seasoned with grace is acceptable to those who hear what comes. So what have you got in your picture? Do you know which city this is that is in your Bible here? Which city is there? You'll have to go back to the verse before. You'll find it in verse 18. Which city is it? Jericho. What do you know about Jericho? Everyone knows about Jericho. What happened at Jericho? The walls came down. What had God said about this? You must destroy everything. It was a city devoted to destruction. Everything was to be destroyed. And we know that Rahab the harlot was saved. We won't go into that. But the city, it was a devoted city to destruction. That's the city of Jericho. And we're in the city of Jericho and the men of the city said, it's well situated, but there is water. A spring gives this water and wherever it flows, it kills everything. It's unproductive. The land is dead. Wherever the spring flows, wherever the water goes, remember, let your conversation, 
wherever the water flows, your conversation be always with grace, seasoned with salt, so it may minister to the, those who hear. So here you have a picture of a spring giving water, but wherever the water goes, it is death. It's not giving life. The land is not producing fruit. It's death wherever the water goes. So what do you do when you have a problem? What did these men do in this city? It says the men of the city, who did they go to? Who did the men of this city of Jericho go to? Elisha. You know what Elisha means? El God, Isha, the answer of prayer, or the God of all riches, whichever you like. <coughs> so Elisha is the God of all riches. Tell me, is God rich in grace? Exceedingly rich in his grace and kindness towards us. So they go to Elisha, who represents the God of riches. You have a problem with your mouth and the words that come out of it? Where do you go? You go to the God of riches, because only he can put grace into our lips, what comes out of the spring. So they have this problem. And they said to him, there's nothing wrong with the situation. I cannot blame my circumstances for the way I speak and act. The problem lies in the spring, not in what's around me. I remove the, the fault and failure of my life, accusing others of why I'm like I am, and I bring down to the understanding it lies in me, the problem, not those outside of me. So we're getting a right concept as we come to the story we are looking at. We look outside and we blame many things. God says, no, 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 you've got a spring inside you. So they come to Elisha and they said, there's nothing wrong with where the city is. It's the spring. So what's the answer? What does the God of riches say? He said, bring me a new vessel. Now when you're reading the epistle to Peter, you're going to say, Peter said, I'm going to put off my vessel shortly as the Lord has shown me. What's it mean? His vessel is his body and he's going to die. Your vessel is made out of clay, by the way. God took the dust of the earth and he made the first man and you're just dust, you're just a vessel and inside that vessel, God, when he saves you, puts his Holy Spirit, but you're a vessel. Bring me a new one. What's that mean? Not soiled by any dirt at all. What's that mean? Christ became flesh. He was sinless. Bring me a new vessel. Where did he come from? The nation of Israel. These men are from Israel. They're speaking to Elisha and the nation of Israel. He's the seed of David according to the flesh. He had a flesh and blood body. Bring me a new vessel. There's no sin in this one. Put salt in it. What's that? We beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. Tell me, has he got any salt in him? He's full of it. Full of grace and truth. Bring me a new vessel. Put salt in it. What's he do? He goes to the spring and he takes the salt and he throws it in and he says, never again. Never again will this spring give forth water 
that brings death wherever it goes. God puts into us an incorruptible seed called the Word of God because Elijah said, these waters are healed and according to his word it has remained forever standing like that. God's word is the power of God to save the soul that believes. It is incorruptible seed. It's born again by incorruptible seed. It's the word of God and it lives and it abides forever. Talk about a picture of the power of grace It's the mighty power of God. You say, I haven't got a spring. Yes, you have. Jesus said, out of the mouth proceed. Out of the heart proceed. He's dealing with the spring. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, blasphemies, jealousy, envy, and he just lists the lot, one after the other. He said, they come from the spring. Out of your heart proceed. When Paul is defining our standing before a holy God, he says this. Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3. Listen to the spring described. Romans chapter 3. And we are reading from verse... 13. No, we're not going to go to 10. We're going to go on. Romans 3, verse 13. See if you can identify the spring because we are given the progress of the water from the spring. Romans 3, verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Where's your throat? Well, you all got one. It's here. Your throat is an open grave. What's that mean? It means the dirt hasn't been thrown in, the dead body's there, and all the stench of its death you can smell. Their throats, and Paul is diagnosing from the judge of all mankind the condition of every human heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. So he says the throat is an open sepulchre. The stench God smells is like a grave where the body is rotting, there's no dirt thrown in and that's how he smells the natural man's heart. The thoughts, the things, Jesus said out of the heart proceed. Evil thoughts. Not talking about the words you hear, it's the thoughts. We are face to face with a God who knows every thought. And wonder Paul says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Talk about a work God must do in us. And that's why I took this theme particularly. It says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we step here, it says their throat Open graves. Notice their tongues practice deceit. So you've gone from the throat out to the tongue. Notice the progression. Throat to the tongue. The tongue practices deceit. 
doesn't speak the truth, it's not clear, single, open, plain, honest and upright. It is deceitful. You're going to go to watch your kid? Did you take the cookies? No, I didn't. From youth, we are deceitful. If we think we can get away with it, we will. That's our nature, naturally. Then it says, the poison of asps. An asp is a deadly, deadly creature. The poison of asps is under the lips. The strike and poison that comes out. Our words, they go in and they do damage like the strike of a, a, a serpent injecting the poison. You watch, you listen, across the world today. You listen, particularly if you get into families and you hear the words flung from one to the other and it cuts, it hurts, and it's going on all the time, isn't it? It's what's happening. It's, the, it's what's proceeding from the spring. Poison of asp is under the lips. And then he goes on. He says, Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. What has Paul done? He's taken the psalms and he's just put out the spring before our eyes. Throat, mouth, lips. It's all there. And it's proceeding out like this. We have a big problem. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Thank God for his word. The law was given to condemn us, yes. But where sin abounded under that law, grace superabounded. It overflowed. So we are dealing with a power the world knows nothing of. In fact, the world does not want to even name sin today. Doesn't want to talk about sin today. Particularly some sins. It just doesn't want them mentioned. But we have a message. We believe the power of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So when we step into this Old Testament picture of this water and it's destroying everything wherever it goes, God puts into that picture the power of God's grace through the grace that is in Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we have taken a subject that is very strongly dealt with in the whole of Scripture. Old and New Testament. (laughs) It's not something restricted to the New Testament. The word occurs repeatedly, truly, in the New Testament. But it is, its evidence is everywhere in the Old Testament. So let's go on. <coughs> I've given Ephesians 1 verse 19. <coughs> Paul prays for the Ephesian saints. <coughs> Three things he prays them for. Take the Bible to Ephesians 1 19. This is one of the things he, and he's addressing saints. He's not addressing sinners. All these letters are written to believers, to saints. They're not written to the world. They're not written. The gospel goes to the world. But the truths of what Christ has done are meant to be understood and grasped by believers. So he has three things he prays, and this is one of the things. The eyes may be open. They may be given the spirit of wisdom, revelation in the knowledge of Christ 
Tell me, what knowledge do you have of Christ? Paul says, I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power. To us would who believe. You mean, he has to pray so that I can really know that? Yes, I do not know it naturally. I have to have my eyes opened by the word so that I can see and understand the exceeding greatness of God's power to us who believe. What is it? This grace that is in Christ Jesus. It is the power of God to us who believe. And the power is measured. He said it's according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly place. He said, that's the power. That's the power that's in work in those who believe. That is a transforming, changing power beyond our grasp to comprehend. And you have sung the hymn, the, um, the two hymns you have sung. You know about the love of God? The immensity of it. You can't separate God's love from his grace. So when we come to this great, exceeding greatness of his power, Paul says, be strong. You be strong. Your strength rests here. You'll be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not your strength. There is grace in Christ Jesus and you become strong in that grace. and I've put a few quotes there in Peter he says the God of all grace listen there's none outside of him the God of all grace that salt that was in that vessel in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily God is spirit But he took a flesh and blood body in Christ. Never had a flesh and blood body been seen on earth. God in the flesh. In him dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is the last Adam. The second man, the Lord from heaven. That's who he is. The first Adam, yes, that's who I came from. But here is the last Adam the first born from the dead. What an immensity of power is demonstrated to the world by the resurrection because there is now a man in the glory for our sakes. There is a man with a flesh and bone body in heaven now. We are represented There is someone who speaks with absolute power in the presence of the whole of heaven and none can dispute his authority. His blood is on the mercy seat. He is God's great high priest. He satisfied the whole demands of his father in regard to sin. We have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What a salvation is open to our understanding so that we may know the riches that are in Christ Jesus. 
we are seeing the demonstration of his love and his kindness towards us because we did not deserve it. It is opened out to us in Christ. And so we come to this great thought, the God of all grace. Every, and I've quoted from James, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from a God in whom there is no shadow of turning. What a God. What a gift. When Paul writes in, in dealing with the grace of giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he ends up with, now, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. He's talking of Christ. And where does he get that from? When he starts to introduce his teaching about the grace of giving, he says, you know the grace of God. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. You say rich? Rich with treasures this world knows nothing of. The world knows nothing of the riches that are in Christ. It doesn't even look for them. It doesn't understand them. It doesn't know them. They are blind to these immeasurable riches that are found only in Christ. Paul speaks of the love of God. Its width, its breadth, its height, its depth. Its immeasurable nature. And as much as God's love is immeasurable, His grace is infinite that he should reach down to you and me with the purpose of lifting us to eternally dwell with him is something beyond our grasp. This God whom we worship is the God of all grace. You will not get it anywhere else. You will only get it in God. We behold his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness have all we received. He's speaking to believers. And grace for grace. There's an immensity of wealth opened out to us in Christ. These are real treasures. These are riches beyond compare. The riches of His mercy the greatness of his kindness immeasurably found in this grace that is in Christ Jesus. What an amazing thing is opened out to us. No wonder Paul says, be strong, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. All right, you're the next one. <coughs> I've taking a pathway through uh, because I have found this is the best way to grasp the God that we worship because he is the God of time he created time he made time he controls time and he will end time so when I worship this God I must ask the question Grace when do I hear the first mention of grace with God? 
and taking the name of Noah, and you've got a King James, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the first real mention of the word in its sense, it is seen in other bits before this, but in this sense where it's in here, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what do we find? Now I'm going to deal with you. The principle is never seen in your Bible. It's not written down. But it's a principle called the law of first mention. That simply means this. When God mentions a subject in the Scriptures, because He is the author of it all, He will build on that subject, but He will never change the truth of it. Am I clear? When God mentions a subject, He will build on that subject, and this is a principle when I've had to study Genesis 1-11, to this is a divine principle God has put into the Scriptures. When He mentions a subject, He will build on that subject through the rest of scriptures, but he will never change the message of that subject he's got. And here we are dealing with this question of the first mention, and it's the first mention of grace. Noah found grace. What an amazing statement. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what's that mean? Listen carefully, and I'm quoting from the King James. God spoke to this man Noah, and he told him, the earth is corrupt. His wording in the King James, they have corrupted my way on the earth. The NIV will have a little different. They have corrupted their ways. King James says, they have corrupted his way, God's way, on the earth. You say, what do you mean? There was a way that God had. It was called the way to the tree of life. It was instituted at the Garden of Eden and was called the way to the tree of life. What way was that? Very simple. The Garden of Eden was where you could fellowship with God. There was the tree of life. But you could not go to that tree of life and have life and live forever because there was a sword turning every way. The work of that sword was to cut you down. It was a flaming sword, so it would consume you to ashes. There's no way you can go into the tree of life. That was what stopped you. There was a barrier. Now, we know what happened in that Garden of Eden. We know that sin entered. So, What happened when sin entered? We learn that Adam and Eve hid from the presence of God. God forced them by virtue of questioning to acknowledge from their own lips what they had done. And what they said condemned them. But when they took from that tree the fruit of of the knowledge of good and evil, immediately they knew they were naked. And they were ashamed. Before this, they had been naked and unashamed. So what did they lo- They lost a covering and they now knew they were naked. 
They felt the shame between the two of them. You remember what the Bible tells us. We've done it. We've all done it. They got the products of this world and they proceeded to work with the world they are living in to put a covering on themselves. We all do it. We try to put our own works, our own covering over ourselves because we've got a conscience and that conscience says you've sinned, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong, how will I get away? I must cover it. I must have something to protect myself from. I I must cover over the shame of my conscience and what it's done. So they get fig leaves, leaves, and they sew them together. And so when Adam looks at Eve, she's not naked. No more shame. Adam, he's covered with fig leaves. Eve looks at him, no longer is that. They've covered the shame of their nakedness. But your Bible says they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? Adam hid behind the trees in that garden. And God called, Adam, where are you? Not because God did not know where he was, but he wanted to listen to the sinner's response. I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. You look in there and say, Adam, you're not naked. You're covered. Wouldn't you? Eve, you're not naked. You're covered. You've got fig leaves all over you. What's it mean? I can hide from you and you can hide from me by your good life, by the works that you do, and so you look respectable and you look very good. But once meet with God, once meet with the holiness of God, and there's not a man in the Bible, even the godliest of men in your Bible, meeting with the holiness of God who does not fall to the ground, who does not require the touch of God on them to bring any strength back into them. Look at Ezekiel, look at Daniel, look at John. So you have here the revelation of meeting with a holy God. I have tried to cover my own shame with my own manufactured things from this world. And they fail to hide my shame in the presence of God. I am guilty. So what must God do? And while it is not described, we can think it through and maybe you call it sanctified imagination. I don't know. But your Bible simply says, God made skins of garments to cover the shame of their nakedness. So what did God do? God took a knife. God took a lamb. They watched as God slit its throat, the blood gushed down, the lamb dropped, it's dead. Its life is given. He takes the lamb whose life has been given and taken and proceeds to take the skin of that lamb, that very lamb who died in their place. They know that the wages of sin, they've never been taught it, but they're learning it. The wages of sin is death. And here, death has taken place for the first time in the whole of a perfect creation. Death is manifested and God has made a creature die for the sake of man who sinned. And they watch. Once God kills it, that's not enough. He skins it. He takes the whole representation of the creature that died and puts it on them. Wow! 
What a picture. It means we are made the righteousness of God in Christ. A provision must be made and man will not make it. God will make it. The institution of sacrifice was only made as shadows of a reality to come. They could never take away sin. So God himself gives a message. When they're put out of that garden, we find the first family on earth. And that family on earth grew up. And you need to spend time in your Bible and just think through what you're seeing. Because you can imagine a family, and there are two boys, there are others, but we are given the names of two boys. The firstborn is Cain. There is another one called Abel. And this family grows up outside the Garden of Eden. Their parents are clothed with garments of skins. They see the flaming sword. They see the cherubim of glory. Why can't we go in? There's only one entrance. Why can't we go in? What was it like in there? What happened in there? Why are we out here? They must answer questions. In case you don't know, you haven't had children. True? You get to about age four, there's question after question after question, isn't there? They want to know things. All right. So you come to these children and they're growing up in this family. And Adam and Eve have a testimony. They can tell what it was like to walk and talk with God face to face. It was something they alone knew which no other human on the earth has ever known. Probably the closest you have to it is Moses. When, when, when his two um, siblings, Miriam and Aaron, rose up against Moses and were jealous of his position, God came down in anger, we are said, and he called the three out and he said to the two, his older, children, his older brother and sister, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? If I speak to a prophet, it will be in, in visions and dreams, but not so with Moses. I speak with him face to face. Why were you not afraid? And God went up in anger and Miriam was left rotting leprosy on the earth. So you come to this understanding that the parents of these children could tell them exactly what went on in that garden. And they come to an age, their business, they have income, they have grown to maturity in manhood. And they come to worship the one who was in that garden because that never disappeared till the flood. That testimony never disappeared, was there till the flood came. They want to meet with the one who's in that garden. They want that tree of life. They want to live forever. They know they can't go through. How do you approach? How do you come? Well, we've heard and understood from our parents. So what do they do? They come to offer to bring something that will allow them to be accepted in the presence of God. And we find, the Bible says, Cain and his offering were rejected. Abel and his offering were accepted. 
So you have two views which go right through your Bible. Accepted, rejected, based on how the approach is made to God. Now what's the message? Sometimes we think that these men, way back there, were primitive. They didn't really know much theologically, spiritually, biblically till you begin to dig deep and you realise they saw often more than we see today. Because what the Holy Spirit has done in the Bible is this. You read your account in Genesis chapter 4 and it says, Cain bought an offering of the fruit of the ground. But Abel brought, notice the but, but, and that contrast the Holy Spirit will take and transfer you across to Hebrews chapter 11. But think what you're reading in Genesis. Cain bought of the fruits of the ground. He slaved, he sweated, he brought it out. It had cost him a lot. And he put it there as an offering to God. Abel, he bought four things. Because your Bible says this in the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So it is the quality of the sacrifice that is in question. You have two set side by side. Wherein lay Abel's quality? Your Bible says by faith he did it. What did he believe? Well, your Bible says he offered fat portions. That simply means this. He slew the animal to get the fat portions. When you're reading Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7, you're going to find out what he means, fat portions. Because we live on a farm, because we have cattle, we kill our own meat, it's very real to us, all right? So what happens? We just kill the beast, you shoot it, kill it, cut its throat. But to get at the fat, this fat in your Bible is round the kidneys. That's to the liver and it joins it to the backbone. When you're pulling the whole, the animal's on the ground, you have to skin it and then you have to cut it right out and pull everything out inside, stomach and all that kind of thing. And then you finally get right inside to the backbone and there's the fat round the kidneys. The Bible says, God says, that's my food. Three times the priests will offer the food to God. You must not eat that fat. God says, it is my food. If you want it in modern terms and you go to a butcher, it's called suet, I think. But that's the fat he's referring to. It's not the fat around the meat. It's none of that. It's special fat. And the reason is this. Where does God look for perfection? Right inside. Remember David? Remember Jesse, his sons? They're brought before Samuel. And Eliab came in, his head and shoulders. He's great. He's just like Saul. And Samuel said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. I anointed Saul. Here's head and shoulders above everyone. Now I've got another one, just like this. And God had told him, You call them. He knew he had to anoint. And so when Eliab came in, the oldest of, of uh, Jesse's sons, said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. God said to him, Don't look on his outward appearance. I don't see like that. I look in the inward part. I look at the heart. So when God looks, what's he looking for? Absolute perfection. Perfect trust in him. He found it only in one man. The man, Christ Jesus. 
It's the only one he's ever found. That's why he says, that fat is my food. God has, the son has totally satisfied his father. He looked on a man and he was perfect. He was sinless and he was food to his father in regard to his demand for absolute righteousness. If anyone is to substitute himself and pay the full penalty for the perfect sinfulness of humankind, it will demand a perfect man. So when Abel offered, he took that enemy, slew it, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He knew it from what he learnt from his parents. He took fat portions from the animal he slew. Then your Bible says, he took the firstborn. Now, we had sheep. We've now got rid of them, but we had sheep. What happens with sheep? I'll tell you what happens with sheep. You get a ewe, growing up female sheep, has its first lamb, right? About nine months later, second lamb, third lamb, just goes on a sequence like this. Your Bible says, because he was a keeper of sheep, when he went to select for his offering, he didn't select anything. He looked only for one kind, firstborn. Not secondborn, not that it was firstborn. Did he have understanding? Did he grasp an immensity of truth and thought it necessary only to take the firstborn of the sheep? Because one day there would be a firstborn and I will make him higher than the kings of the earth. He's firstborn from the dead. He's the He's the grounds, Abel was saying, for my salvation. Talk about grasp of understanding. And we shrink back, we hardly grasp the immensity of understanding that they had. And he chose a sheep. Not because he was a keeper of sheep, but he knew you don't offer pigs. Why? A sheep is clean. A sheep divides the hoof and chews the cud. Christ meditated on the word of God and he walked on God's high places. He said, My Father has not left me alone. I do always those things that please him. Abel knew what he was doing. He could see Christ afar off. And when he selected, it was by faith. And faith understands offered that his was accepted Cain's was rejected say why was Cain's rejected because you can offer fruits you can why is his rejected because under the law you could offer fruits to God but you could never offer fruits without the whole burnt offering being offered first you must depend on the whole burnt offering consumed by fire sacrificed by a knife or a sword once that has been done you have grounds to approach a holy God and you can bring your offering but if you bring your offering without understanding that someone must take the penalty due to you must suffer the wrath 
from God that's due to you for your sin. You're approaching God in a wrong way. And Cain was rejected. Terrible pictures. Tell me, was Abel a recipient of God's grace? He understood, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That God would one day provide perfectly for him as a sinner. He acknowledged his place as sin. Someone needed to die. Blood had to be shed. And it's become the whole message of Scripture from the beginning right through to the holy city of Jerusalem where finally there is no temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the light of that city. And the scene goes through consistently from beginning to end. When God deals with sin, He's dealt with it in only one way. In the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. One way. Now your Bible says when you come to Noah they had corrupted God's way on the earth. So what's that mean? Abel did. No, sorry. Cain did. God's way was the way Abel went. The accusation in your New Testament, in the book of Jude, it says, they have gone in the way of Cain. False teachers, they've gone in the way of Cain. Cain had his own way of approach to God. And he started a systematic of teaching that gave an approach to God without the need that Abel saw. And that teaching in the seventh generation from Adam intruded into the godly line from Seth. And in that seventh generation there was a prophet called Enoch. And there was a daughter of man named Naamah. And Naamah means beautiful. And in that generation Enoch saw a son of God of the line of Seth take Naamah beautiful and took her to wife and he prophesied the day is coming the Lord is going to judge he's coming with all his holy ones to convince all that are ungodly of all their ungodly speeches of all their ungodly words against him he's coming he saw it then and he prophesied Enoch could see one act would lead to this when you get to the 10th generation, your King James is an accurate translation. Your Bible says, to Noah, he says to Noah, you only have I seen in this generation righteous before me. Not another person. Only one. In fact, when you're reading Ezekiel, though these, though these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job, stood before me and Noah is named first, they would save only themselves and not their families when he's speaking of judgment on Israel. And we have this tremendous word. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What are the circumstances? The darkest hour the world has known, isn't it? If God says, you only have I seen righteous before me in this generation, the tenth generation, 
You're the only one left who acknowledges Abel's approach was right. He's the only one left. And God says, I will wipe mankind from the face of the earth. I am grieved I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Has God got power to save you and me? Yes, it's in his son. That's how it takes place. I have no record of time. There is no clock on the wall. So you'll have to put up with me. I trust as I've gone through and I don't know how fast I'll go because things come to me as I see and I prefer to be able to speak like this. Is that all right? I just speak as I see. I'll try and follow as we go. I want you to think clearly about what you're hearing because we are living at desperate hour. I know it. I know it personally. I know it because I travel through Bible colleges. And I know that there there has come an absolute necessity to stand for truth, for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So I trust that during this week I can help you in grasping the importance individually, you as a person, to stand with understanding on the strength that only God supplies in this hour in which we find ourselves. God bless you. We will continue tomorrow. Let's pray and then I'll hand over. Heavenly Father, as we have considered the wonder of who you are, the wonder of your dealings with mankind in our sin, your willingness to let your own son be treated the way he was on this earth by mankind with the whole purpose of saving us from the wrath to come. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your saving power. We realise that only your grace poured into us will produce from our hearts and through our lips the kind of words you want to hear from us. May our hearts be filled with praise, adoration and thanksgiving to the God who has loved us with an everlasting love and with arms of love has drawn us to himself. We give you great thanks tonight. We worship you for who you are. Lord, give us a thirst after yourself for knowing you intimately and clearly and therefore giving you the honour that's due to your name. Give you thanks tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen.